Hello, welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who love showing off their band-aids on Instagram. My, <laughs> na- <laughs> my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician from Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we have a really great episode for you today. Um, today, as we're recording, marks the beginning of National Influenza Vaccination Week. Did Ooh, you know that? I did. I did. NIVW. <coughs> and so we are talking about the flu. And we're talking about flu vaccines and flu, flu, flu is what we are talking about today. We have two really wonderful guests. Our uh, first guest is Dr. William Schaffner, who has is the now only repeat guest that we've had so far. Mm -hmm. Um, He is the uh, director of infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University, and he's also a member of the Voices for Vaccines Scientific Advisory Board. And then we also have Cerise Murata, and she is the Chief Operating Officer at Families Fighting Flu. So we are kind of covered, aren't we? That sounds great. I think, you know, if we're getting repeat guests, we're going to need, like, special jackets for those. Like, you know how on Saturday Night Live you get into the Five Times Club, like Steve Martin and whatnot? I think we may need something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, with our giant budget. Um, so yes, <laughs> <laughs> but that budget's going to get bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, that's up to the people listening. How's, right how's now. that budget? How's that budget going to get bigger? Well, you know, actually, I'm glad you asked. Um, mm-hmm. Voices for Vaccines has a couple of really big goals, but our biggest goal for next year is to revamp our website because now we are doing so many more things than we were doing in 2012 when we were trying to figure out what to do with our website that we've outgrown our website. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those of you who are wondering, it's voicesforvaccines.org. And you'll kind of, you know, for example, if you're trying to find the podcast on the website, you have to know it's voicesforvaccines.org slash podcast. You're not going to chance. It's kind of hidden. And it's that way because we need a new website. And there are other advocacy portals that we need to put on and, and whatnot. So we are really trying to push a big fundraiser this year. I'm sending out letters. I've been bugging people on social media. Um, You're going to get emails about it and you're going to love all of them and you're not going to unsubscribe to any lists. And uh, what we're trying to do is raise $10,000 for this website. And that's, of course, above and beyond our normal operating budget, which um, does things like helps us put this podcast out into the world. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, we really need your help. You can donate at voicesforvaccines.org slash support. And I will put that link right at the top of the podcast notes. But but Karen, are we not already funded by multi-billion dollar companies that <laughs> provide us everything that we need, including fancy websites and elite jackets for our recurring guests? Oh, were that true. (laughs) (laughs) Voices for Vaccines, what most people don't realize is that every single penny Voices for (laughs) Vaccines has comes from individual donors. So if you've ever donated $10, then you have helped fund a podcast before. Um, So Uh, yes, there's no big pharma money. There's no big pharma helicopters. There's no big pharma (laughs) special luncheons. 
Is that why I've never gotten a check in the mail for doing this podcast? <laughs> yes, that is why. <laughs> you are one of our valued uh, volunteers. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, okay. Now you tell me. No big pharma backers. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so yes, that's that's uh, that's one around the web, but it's not my main around the web. So let's okay. go ahead and shift to around the web, and I'm going to let you start since I okay. just talked for a while. Well, I'm going to mention two things, both of which that I was involved in. The first one is a webinar that just within the last few weeks went up on the CDC uh, YouTube channel. Uh, so I, I have it pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. Maybe we can put a link on the on the on the when we when we have a page for this. Uh, this po for this uh, podcast uh, so people can get to it. And it is called uh, Getting Families to Yes, Conversa Vaccine Conversations That Work for Parents and Providers. I got to do this with a couple of great physicians, Dr. Sharon Humiston, who I believe is from Children's Mercy, Kansas City, and Dr. Margot Savoy, who's a family practice doctor from uh, I believe it's Christiana Health System in Delaware, and both of whom are, and, and Dr. Humison's a pediatrician, both of them are, uh, were f fantastic people to basically just have a conversation with about what tools do we use when we talk to families, what seems to work, what does the evidence show when we talk about providers talking to families and, and moving them towards, uh, moving the hesitant towards agreeing to immunize their children. And it was a wonderful conversation. I will mention that it also got me my first hit piece on Age of Autism, which we will not link to, but uh, it is out there. So... <laughs> Um, they, they took issue with the things that all of us said, but I think mostly me. And so, you know, if you're interested, <laughs> that's out there. I don't necessarily recommend you go, uh, need, you need to hunt that down, but it is a little <laughs> bit of a, like a little thing I can stick on the wall and say, yes, I, I, I have done enough advocacy for vaccines to get a hit piece. Uh, on Age of Autism. So personally, I have, although I know we've been pushing to get a hit piece on this. On the podcast. Uh, on the podcast. Come on, Age of Autism. Jesus, like, it's almost like we're not a, uh, I, I guess, since we're not a uh, multi-million dollar funded uh, operation here, I guess that's why we're not big enough potatoes to get Maybe we noticed. need sound effects. Maybe. That might We do. could. Yeah. Yeah. Or we could come up with more, you know, rap parodies. Hmm. There's that. There's all kinds of things <laughs> that we could do. I don't know what the magic sauce is for getting mm. out of autism. No, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing that I'll mention too is I did a, a blog post recently, so this will be on my blog at pedsgeekmd.com. Uh, one of the conversations that has been going around lately is what is the actual death rate of measles? And it's an interesting thing to kind of do a deep dive into and analyze. Uh, very commonly one in a thousand, uh, so one death per 1,000 cases of measles is used as the um, standard kind of the uh, assumed death rate. And actually that's not a bad assumption, but you do have to kind of dig into underreporting of measles cases, but also underreporting of measles deaths. So there's a lot of uh, anti-vaccine websites that try to downplay the seriousness of measles and make it sound like the measles because of underreporting that it's more like one in 10,000. A lot of it is moot because these death rates are not okay, regardless of whether it's 1 in 10,000 or 1 in 1,000 or 3 in 1,000. But if we're trying to dispel myths, I think that this the, the, the blog post that I put up, I think, can be a good resource for people who are out there trying to uh, kind of debunk myths about measles. So if you want to go to my blog, peacegeekmd.com, check that out. Please do. What you got? Excellent. 
Well, I have something I just found it this morning, um, and uh, it's it's uh, not as positive as your. Although I guess being age of autism hit based <laughs> on you isn't positive. No, um, totally positive. But I found a website called vactivists.com, V-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-T-S.com, uh, which sounds oh, positive. Yeah, sure. That sounds like a website for for us, right? Or we're <laughs> right? activists. We're, so this we're, yeah. this is who they say they are. Vactivist mm. is a combination of the word vaccine and activist. A yeah, group got that. We have effect. <laughs> a group we have uh, affectionately used the term to refer to those who are active in a- vaccine advocacy world, meaning. Mm. The community is made up of people who are either concerned with safety of vaccines and or laws regarding vaccine choice. Ah, so, so anti-vactivist is what we're talking about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the interesting, <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about this is they have a forum. So forums, plural, forums.vactivists.com. Uh-huh. Um, when you click on that, the big pop-up jumps out at you. It says, stop. By reading, <laughs> you're already sorry. laughing. You I, yeah, I'm this going. already cracks me up. Yeah, sorry. Okay, pull it together. Stop okay. by right reading or visiting the. <laughs> by reading or visiting these forums, you must agree to the following. By reading or entering these forums, you contractually agree to the following. The first is that mm-hmm. you're 18 years or older, and that the website's for personal use. It says that because they can't give medical advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second one. By viewing these forums, you certify that you are not a member or affiliated with any of the following. (laughs) Voices for Vaccines. (laughs) CDC. Emory University. Task Force for Global Health. UC Hastings. FDA. World Health Organization. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Or any other group pushing vaccination or vaccine. Anybody who, any group that actually knows what they're talking about. Right. And then um, <laughs> the the third one is that you have no affiliation with pharmaceutical companies. And that mm. one's worded funny, so you have to go there and look at it. And then the fourth one, I'm going to do this because I think some people will get a kick out of this. You are not a member of anti-vax wall of shame, embarrassed cousins of proud parents <laughs> of unvaccinated children, or any other group organization that bullies, demeans, makes fun of, or harasses those with different beliefs. And... Um, the last one is, this is a contractual agreement, and you contractually agree not to screenshot or share material in groups such as Anti-Vax, Wall of Shame, or any similar groups or any previously mentioned groups. And then you have to <laughs> okay. click on, I agree to the following before mm-hmm. it takes you to the website. I feel like this is going to seem like a challenge to some people. Like right now, <laughs> I mean, just mentioning it for <laughs> informational purposes only. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't think there's anything useful to be gained from going there. I really don't. No, generally but not. I just got a kick out of the fact that they they, um, they mentioned vac- voices for vaccines first, and I'm sort of flattered that I was in a list with um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and mm-hmm. got first billing. Well, we're big like that. We, we really are big are. like that. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna Gates and us. Second. We're very tight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna pause for just a second because I see Dr. Schaffner there. Yeah, well, here's yeah, here's Bill. Hi, Karen, and hi, Nathan. Hey, how Hello. are you? I'm fine, thanks. We actually haven't started talking about flu, but I think we're just gonna fold you in because I think this conversation will be really interesting with you until Cerise <coughs> can join us. So, shall we just go ahead with this? Yeah, let's hit it. Um, 
I wanted to start off talking about what influenza actually is because I think that there is still after all of the education that's gone on in the public health world there's still confusion about this and I get this feeling because um, I had a friend a few years ago who told me that he didn't need to get the flu shot because he had the flu and it just wasn't that big of a deal and I my gut response was you didn't have the flu (laughs) because no one ever has that reaction to having the flu and he got mad, and I said, okay, okay, let's back up. What were your symptoms? Any guesses? Uh, probably vomiting and diarrhea. That's Ex- what I'm going to guess. That's exactly yes. what ding it ding was. Ding. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. So that's not influenza. So doctors Boonstra and Schaffner, mm-hmm. what is influenza? Go well, ahead, I'll, Nathan, you start. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lay down the basics and then and let you go more in depth, but uh, so influenza, I always tell my patients, influenza is a respiratory disease. I mean, if you're not having significant respiratory symptoms, then we're not talking about influenza or a flu-like illness. Um, one of the big misnomers that plagues pediatricians and, and um, primary care providers is this idea of, quote-unquote, the flu that's out there, which can encompass almost anything you can be vomiting or diarrhea for less than 24 hours and you say you had the stomach flu and then people think that that's the flu and you can have a cold you can have mild respiratory illness uh with without fever and people will think that's the flu and they'll oh i had the flu yeah no when we talk about influenza we're talking about by definition a fairly severe respiratory you know at least a moderately severe respiratory illness in most people in which you're gonna have fever you're gonna have a significant amount of coughing um, and you're gonna get the whole you know usually the whole body aches and um, all that kind of thing with it so you feel like you've been hit by a truck uh, and you are you're coughing a lot so uh, one of the common things that we hear is, uh, you know, I got a vaccination and then at some point following the vaccination, you know, I got my flu shot, at some point following the flu shot within, I don't know, a few weeks to a month, I got X, Y, and Z symptoms, which can be anything from gastro symptoms, you know, the vomiting to, oh, I got a cough or a cold or sniffles and blaming it on the vaccines. Those things are not even influenza. Um, influenza is serious because it does a number on us in terms of it works our immune system hard, it works our lungs hard, and it sets us up for um, complications. You know, probably the most common and of the serious ones being pneumonia. Um, that we see a fair amount. You know, I see kids with influenza that get a bacterial pneumonia as a secondary infection. And it's very severe. It puts them in the hospital, um, and it can potentially be fatal in some cases. And I've seen that. I saw that as a resident. I saw it when I was on the, the unit in, in the Peds intensive care unit. I saw children die of influenza complications. Uh, and it was one of the worst things because it could have been prevented. Uh, and so it's very hard uh, to talk to a family that doesn't understand the severity of influenza or how you know how potentially bad it could turn out. Uh, and then they refuse the flu shot because they don't understand that or don't don't think that um, my assessment of of the danger of influenza is right. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that 
I'm always uh, asked about is how you differentiate influenza from a cold. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a bit of an overstatement, but what I like to say is if your symptoms are largely above the neck, you're, you're likely to have a cold. Influenza gets down into your chest. It's almost invariably, at least among we adults, uh, associated with a cough. And as you say, Nathan, it produces really systemic illness. And this is a point I like to mention. It sets up an inflammatory state in the body. And the data indicate, and they've been coming in over the past five, six, seven years. Get this, <clears throat> certainly after adults recover from influenza, for the two weeks to a month or six weeks after you've recovered from your acute flu, this enhanced inflammatory state is still in your body and you are at three to five times increased risk during that period of having a heart attack and a stroke. So this inflammation involves blood vessels And of course, the blood vessels can become compromised to either the heart or to the brain. And so by getting flu vaccine, you're not only contributing to your protection against the acute illness, you're contributing to some protection against a subsequent stroke or heart attack in the month after you recover from the flu. And we've seen that in some studies, correct? I know that there have been studies that kind of show generalized better outcomes, not just for direct flu-related complications like pneumonia, but things like heart attack, um, that that outcomes are better for those that have been immunized uh, with seasonal flu, correct? You bet. You bet. And this information is generally not available because it's pretty new and it's coming in from here and there. It's not really known by the average doctor. As I've been talking about this uh, recently to doctors groups, grand rounds and the like, that really makes the audience uh, sit up. The other thing I've been mentioning is that particularly for older adults who are on the edge of a little disability in their activities of daily living, if you get influenza, obviously it will take you to the bed. Now you recover, and as you recover, you may not ever get back to that same level of functioning that you had before you had influenza. So it kind of is like the first domino that falls that pushes you along the decline toward progressive disability. And older adults really get that message. And I say, you know, This is a pretty quick and easy thing that you can do to help prevent that. We know that the flu vaccine is not perfect, but it's something you can do to prevent that disability slide that gets their attention. I have a a question about that um, with our our, um, seniors. is, does that include things like dementia and um, other, you know, Alzheimer's and other illnesses? Does that kind of hasten the progression of those diseases too? I don't know of any information specifically about mental disabilities such as Alzheimer's. Uh, but physical disability, the ability to just get about and care for yourself, 
That's been well documented. Okay. I was, the reason I asked is because my grandmother had dementia, and uh, every time she got sick, her dementia got a little bit worse. You know, it's a really common uh, mantra that you hear on anti-vaccine websites where they will claim uh, that Alzheimer's is worsened if you get flu shots, and that claim originally comes from actually one of Andrew Wakefield's business partners back in the day when he was trying to patent that measles vaccine and stuff. Uh, Dr. Feudenberg, I believe, he had his own issues going on too. Uh, That claim was made out of thin air by him. There's no study that supports this idea. There's one study that I've seen that associates Uh, getting your flu shot regularly with a decreased chance of Alzheimer's. It's probably not a great study in terms of causation. Uh, It's more, it seemed more strong in terms of correlative, but certainly doesn't support this, this uh, bizarre idea that getting flu shots would increase your risk of Alzheimer's. If anything, it seems to be the opposite. Actually, I think there's a couple of studies that support that. And that's on the Alzheimer's website as well, like the Alzheimer's Foundation I can't remember the exact website off the top of my head, but um, there there's some correlative studies that, that indicate that. I don't know how strong that evidence is, but that getting your flu shot regularly might decrease the risk of of uh, of, of Alzheimer's. That's Alzheimer's Association. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Alzheimer's Association. Well, that's interesting, Nathan. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I think I'll take that with a grain of salt. Sure. I'm not so sure I'm going to promote that. No, I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I, I use it mostly to refute the idea when it comes up from like an anti-vaccine website that, that there's a that there's some kind of cause causative connection between the shot and the and Alzheimer's when the reality is if what evidence is out there doesn't support that in fact says the opposite. Well let's let's turn a little bit to this year then. Um now that we know that my slight um head cold or that my um, vomiting illness is not influenza. Uh, What are we seeing this year and what do we expect from this year's flu season? (laughs) Well, expectations are interesting. (laughs) My crystal ball is always very cloudy regarding predictions, (laughs) but but what's here, except to predict that there will be flu, and that's an easy prediction. But it's here. It's here today. Uh, And uh, over the past couple of weeks, it's uh, started really pretty widespread across the country, according to CDC data. Uh, We here at Vanderbilt are involved in contributing to some of that information. And our surveillance nurses, I was just speaking with them this morning, they just roll their eyes. and, And we're measuring hospital admissions for laboratory documented influenza. So this is the real deal and it's on the more severe end of the spectrum. And so over the past week, week and a half, I would say that hospitalizations in our area of Middle Tennessee have really accelerated for laboratory documented influenza. And this is happening to a greater or lesser degree Uh, spread across the country now. So our flu season has clearly begun and it's a bit early. Not hugely early, but it's a bit early. The second thing we can say is that uh, the CDC has characterized the strains from these early cases 
and they are of the AH3N2 variety. Now that's science speak, but it's a strain that generally causes more severe disease, particularly among older people. So if you needed yet another reason to get vaccinated, there it is. And if we look back to this summer and then go to the Southern Hemisphere, you know, that's below the equator, that's when they have their winter. You remember that from uh, grade school geography? Yes, when sir. we have our summer, they have their winter. And in Australia, they had a rather nasty influenza season with essentially the same strain. So all of us have uh, tightened our seatbelts because we've started early and we are being affected primarily uh, with this more severe H3N2 variety of influenza. With the, um, going back a little bit to, we, we talked about uh, flu shots for the elderly population. Can you comment a little bit on the, the, the different kinds of shots that are available for the, for that population? I know that my understanding is that we have some new influenza vaccines. And of course, I don't take care of this population, so I don't know a whole lot. I understand that neither, none of them are right now preferentially recommended for the elderly population. Is that, can you tell us why that is? And what does the, what does it look like? How good do these vaccines look in terms of efficacy? Sure. As a matter of fact, that's exactly right, Nathan. There are now two uh, vaccines expressly licensed by the Food and Drug Administration for people age 65 and older. The first is been around for actually five or six years. It's called the high dose vaccine. The second is an adjuvanted vaccine that was available for the first time last year and is, continues to be available. The high dose vaccine actually is the same as the regular influenza vaccine, except you've got four times the dose. The adjuvanted vaccine has the regular vaccine associated with an immune stimulant, a, a, an, a chemical that stimulates the immune system so it responds better to the vaccine. Both of these vaccines were designed to cope with the waning capacity of the immune response in older people. Just as we get physically less robust when we get older, so does our immune system uh, also wane in its capacity to respond to vaccines. And both of these are strategies to, if you will, kickstart the immune system so that it works better. Both of them have excellent immunogenicity data. So if you give the vaccine and you test the blood later, you'll find an enhanced immune response. And both of them have data, the high dose vaccine, a lot of data, the adjuvanted vaccine, certainly enough to get licensed to show that you also get enhanced protection against influenza. So those two vaccines are available. And uh, I would suggest that if you're of that age group or you're taking your parent to make sure that they get vaccinated, you might inquire of your healthcare provider if they're available, but you shouldn't leave unvaccinated. <laughs> make sure you get vaccinated. Uh, Nathan, you also asked uh, why it is that the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has not preferentially 
recommended these vaccines. That's mm -hmm. a longish story. Uh, the first thing is they have an aversion generally to making preferential recommendations, not always, but usually. And then of course, <laughs> regarding influenza vaccine, they had this, as you know, as a pediatrician, uh, this difficulty uh, a few years ago because they did preferentially recommend the nasal spray vaccine for younger children, children under eight, and then they had to rescind it the very next year. So the committee is, uh, you know, a little gun shy, if you will, about sure. making uh, preferential recommendations, but they certainly present the data regarding these vaccines very, very clearly in their annual recommendations. And I can tell you here at Vanderbilt, uh, we are using those vaccines uh, and promoting them to our, our providers uh, for people age 65 and older. When I talk to families, of course, I don't take care of grandparents, but I, as a pediatrician, uh, one of the things I I think it's important to contribute is that there's a fair amount of literature that I've seen that suggests that the better immunized our children are against influenza, the better uh, outcomes there are in um, older populations, grandparents and whatnot, uh, in terms of influenza and influenza um, <coughs> um, complications and whatnot. So I always try to make the effort to, since, since vaccines don't work as well in the older populations as we'd like, uh, of course, I want everyone to be immunized regardless of what age they are, if, if they're of the age where they can get the vaccine. Uh, but I also want kids to be immunized so that they're protected, but also so they prevent the spread of uh, influenza to the people that they come into contact with, particularly those in whom the risk of influenza uh, is the worst, which would be the elderly population for one. <laughs> Yay, verily. That's, <laughs> that's, that's true for sure. As, as, as we on the, uh, on, on the webinar all know, uh, children, when they uh, acquire influenza, produce much more influenza viruses than do adults whose response is modulated because we've had previous experience with influenza viruses. So they produce a lot of virus and they excrete the virus, we say, uh, for longer periods of time. So they're the great distributors of the virus in our population amongst themselves, and then they bring it home to mom and dad and Aunt Susie with diabetes and grandfather Tom, who uh, has a little bit of lung disease and is 72 years of age. And of course, those Aunt Susie and Uncle Tom, they're the ones who are much more likely to get the complications because of their underlying illnesses and because of advanced age. So vaccinating children contributes to their protection, but also contributes to a healthier community. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the flu vaccine and how effective we're expecting it to be, because I have been hearing rumors and I, I haven't been able to pin anything exactly down that there was some sort of genetic shift in the virus in the flu virus so that it might not be a match for the vaccine but again this is just what i'm hearing and sometimes people get their information crossed so i'm not sure if you have any solid information on that well what we have heard from the cdc 
<coughs> is that the H3N2 strain, the most common one, is has drifted, as we say, just a little bit from the strain that was so active in Australia this summer, their winter. However, the match between what's in the vaccine still is very good. Now that said, the vaccine unfortunately doesn't usually work perfectly and particularly so with these H3N2 strains. However, and this is an enormous however, we recognize that the vaccine we have available today that science has produced to date is a pretty good vaccine. It's not a perfect vaccine. And vaccine effectiveness is measured by being able to completely prevent disease, just as we measure, oh, polio vaccine or measles vaccine, completely preventing the, the disease. So flu vaccine is not quite so good in that. However, here's the big however, it even if it doesn't protect you completely, if you happen to get flu despite the vaccine, your illness will be milder in all likelihood. You're less likely to have to go to the emergency room, be hospitalized, be admitted to the intensive care unit, and you're less likely to die. I sometimes tease my patients who say, oh, Dr. Schaffner, you gave me the flu vaccine. I still got the flu. <clears throat> and I say, Tom, it's delightful that you're here living, able to complain. <laughs> and they usually laugh when I said that. But the vaccine provides partial protection. And of course, that's not measured in the official statistics. So we really need to take that into account. And beyond that, each and every year, no matter how the final vaccine effectiveness numbers come out, it's shown that the vaccine nonetheless has still prevented many, completely many, many infections, even though it's not perfect. I, I, I like to paraphrase that old French philosopher Voltaire who reminded us that waiting for perfection is the great enemy of the current good. And we can do a lot of good with our flu vaccine, which is pretty good, although it's not perfect. Now I am thrilled to have Cerise Murata join us uh, from Families Fighting Flu. Hello, Cerise. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. So I, I wanted you to join us um, for a couple of reasons. One, the obvious one that you are from Families Fighting Flu, but also because you have your own influenza story from your family. Um, so I want to take everybody back to 2009 with H1N1. And I think people remember very clearly what H1N1 was like. I know I uh, just had on my Facebook memories the memory of sitting on the phone for 45 minutes on hold waiting to make an appointment for a vaccine that my kids would receive six weeks later. And so, um, <laughs> and you know, just people telling, talking about standing in lines for this vaccine, people are very motivated to get the H1N1 vaccine. Um, but before you were able to get it, you uh, 
you had your son Joseph caught the influenza, uh, caught influenza. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experiences with H1N1 in 2009. Sure. Well, um, that fall, it was September 2009, uh, both of my children, Joseph and Emma, had received their flu vaccine. And as you well know, uh, H1N1 was not one of the strains in the vaccine that year. So Joseph did receive his flu vaccine at the end of September there. And fast forward a few weeks and Joseph felt ill. Uh, Innocently enough, that is the way it started off. Uh, He threw up on the school bus. We went and picked him up, took him to the doctor. And they did some tests for the flu and they came back negative. And eventually, uh, later that evening, we took him to the urgent care. And when we got him there, his blood oxygen levels were really low. So they immediately put him in an ambulance and we, we went to the local children's hospital. We were living in Ohio at the time. And when we arrived that evening, he was initially diagnosed with pneumonia. Um, Again, did some more testing for the flu, nothing showed up. So uh, he was admitted to the hospital. Fast forward a few days, they actually came in. I remember the doctors distinctly coming in and saying, well, this is so strange. His culture is growing influenza. So no big deal, we'll um, put him on antivirals. He, He was already on quite a few medications for the pneumonia at that point in time. So started him on the antivirals, and by this time, you know, it had been about three or four days into his his illness. And the the doctor at the time that was treating Joseph said, we'll send out his samples, but even if it's H1N1, don't worry about it. So fast forward a couple more days, and Joseph's condition, you know, he had been downgraded from the ICU. He was relatively stable the whole time, but nonetheless, doing tests, different specialists coming in and out, checking for things. It was on the ninth day of his hospital stay that finally um, something really raised a red flag with me. You know, they were doing a good job taking care of him, but uh, his blood pressure suddenly plummeted. So back to the ICU we go. They couldn't figure out what was happening with him. Um, After about eight hours in the ICU, he very suddenly coded. They worked on him for about 35 minutes, could not revive him. Um, So October 18th, I I lost my healthy five-year-old son to influenza. So yeah, needless to say, it it was a shock. And um, I've always been pro-vaccine, like I said, but, uh, and I consider myself an educated conservative parent, but I really, honestly, until it happened to us, we really, So I, I have a question, um, and one is about your story, because the first symptom that you saw was vomiting, yes. and I'm just wondering if our doctors can comment on that, because before you came on, we were talking about how influenza is a respiratory symptom. So how how is Joseph's story typical or atypical when it comes to influenza, and what our first symptoms might be? Well, I don't think it's too atypical in that any kind of illness that makes a child feel ill can lead to vomiting. Um, Generally, influenza, like we talked about earlier, is not characterized strictly by gastrointestinal symptoms like 
uh, vomiting and diarrhea, but certainly a child who's very ill, <clears throat> you know, vomiting is, is a is kind of a mechanism that a lot of people do in response to stress, whether it's a, you know, whether you are ill or whether it's actually stress, you know, coming from outside or whatnot. So that is maybe one of the early signs, and I wonder kind of when the respiratory uh, symptoms then developed. Can you talk a little bit about that, Cerise? Sure. Uh, his case is a little bit unique, and I say that not um, unique just to Joseph. There are many families in our organization, Families Fighting Flu, whose stories, these children's stories, are all unique and mm-hmm. um, not always respiratory. But with Joseph, we did have an, have an autopsy done. I found that, you know, we thought at the time that we needed to learn from this, and all the doctors that were involved in his case thought the same thing. And the actual cause of Joseph's death his death certificate says complications of H1N1, but what what actually caused Joseph's death was he had um, a catastrophic rupture in his duodenum, which oh is my. that first part of his intestine there. So even the autopsy, even with the pneumonia, showed that Joseph's respiratory system had no part in his death whatsoever. It was actually, the way they had explained it to me at the time is the flu virus kind of got into his body and as frequently we see, it causes all these secondary complications. And what had happened is um, it had eroded away the inside of his intestine. And the one thing that I, was one of my first questions to the doctors is, what test didn't we do? How did we not see this coming? He was in the hospital for 10 days. What did, not what did we miss, right? Because I certainly don't want to, you know, place the onus on them, but I wanted it again to be a learning experience. And they said the only thing they could have done to figure out what was happening in his duodenum there was to scope him. And they said, why would we scope a kid with pneumonia in the flu? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, his his condition, you know, his cause of death, if you will, is a little bit unique because it wasn't respiratory. And I think as a parent, and based on all the other stories that I've heard, and perhaps you guys can, as doctors, can attest to this, is flu isn't just that traditional respiratory disease I've learned. You know, um, it's all the other havoc that it that it causes with those secondary complications. I think it really uh, is kind of brings up what Dr. Schaffner had mentioned earlier that the the complications of influenza can be so wide ranging um, because of how much it does to the body. So even though we think of it in terms of a respiratory disease, um, you know there are so many different things uh, that influenza can cause that can be severe. And I thank you for sharing your story. I feel and and I, I'm so sorry for your loss. But I thank you so much for telling us uh, and making people aware of how severe this disease is. Right. Well, that's that's our main objective here at Families Fighting Flu is we share our stories so that other people can can learn and and hopefully you know. Um, Hopefully they're getting vaccinated and getting their families vaccinated, but if not, we hope that our stories can give them perhaps the additional insight that they need to make that decision for their family's health. Yeah, Cerise, this is Bill Schaffner, and I too am sorry for your loss, and I applaud your courage and your educational impulse, because putting a face, if you will, making these issues personal 
is the way to reach many, many people, and that brings it home to them. So uh, thank you, and uh, you and your friends at Families Fighting Flu, keep it up. We need all the help we can get. And you're doing good because you're reaching people who will have questions and for whom uh, your stories will have real meaning. They will motivate folks to get their children vaccinated. Yeah, that is our hope. Thank you. Absolutely. And I, th I think it also, um, it's such an honor to the memory of Joseph that his, his mom is, you know, hoping people learn from what happened to him and that, you know, he contributes to the world, um, to, to other kids not getting sick because of all of the work that you're doing is sort of amazing. You know, um, I, I think that many of us wonder how, how we could, um, move along with that, but you've, you've sort of taken up the mantle of, uh, families fighting flu. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk for a minute about what sorts of work you can do there and how, um, people can support that work and get involved if they would like to. Yeah, absolutely. So Families Fighting Flu has been around since 2004, so it definitely predates me. Um, I was fortunate enough to come on as the Chief Operating Officer last year. So certainly we are all motivated and passionate here. Um, but we welcome anyone to be part of our organization. Really our mission is to save lives and reduce hospitalizations by protecting all children and their families against influenza. And that's a rather tall order, but the way we go about it is simply put through education and advocacy. Um, again, kind of we, we each go back to our personal stories and say, what did we wish we knew before, right? Before we lost our child or before we had our child suffer these serious medical complications. So education and that outreach is a really important, important point. Um, it's really what our organization focuses on is that outreach. And part of that obviously is sharing our stories because like Dr. Schaffner said, those seem to resonate with people. But just the general outreach too, you know, teaching people that flu is not just a bad cold because I think a lot of people still think that. And I personally, um, even though, like I said, I've always gotten my, myself and my family vaccinated, I had no idea eight years ago that flu was killing healthy adults and children. So, you know, we really want to educate people and inform them about how serious influenza can be. And then subsequent to that, we want to teach them how to prevent flu. You know, what do they have within their power to do to protect their own health as well as their family's health and their community's health? So obviously advocacy is a big part of that. Uh, we have a couple educational campaigns that we have been participating in over the past few years that have been kind of our primary outreach programs. Uh, one is called Keep Flu Out of School, which we actually work with the National Association of School Nurses and the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases on, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So we work with schools and uh, administrators within those schools to again amplify and um, elevate their flu prevention curriculums and initiatives and all that good stuff that goes along with trying to get elementary age school children 
um, vaccinated for flu every year. And then our other educational program is kind of our umbrella program, if you will, is called Stay in the Game. And that was something that we initiated a few years ago. And that, that program is really, the outreach is to everyone. We know the recommendation for annual flu vaccination is everyone six months and older. So while we may focus on certain segments of the population from time to time, be it children, adults, seniors, etc., the whole tagline behind Stay in the Game is we don't want anyone to miss out. We want to keep everyone healthy, and the way, one of the ways we do that is through annual flu vaccination. We don't want people to miss out on school, work, sports, or even fun with family and friends. So, you know, certainly everyone is welcome to visit our website. It's www.familiesfightingflu.org to learn more about those programs. And, you know, if you're interested in flu prevention, maybe you have some questions, feel free to reach out. Or if you're passionate about flu prevention, feel free to reach out and we can certainly get you involved in our organization. Thank you so much. And I have actually, that should have been my last question because I actually have a, a, another question before we go. And this one's really important because I don't want people to hear Joseph's story and, and think, well, I remember H1N1, that was the bad flu. This year, it's, you know, a different flu. It's got different numbers in it. Um, and is there anything that you or Dr. Schaffner or Dr. Boonstra can do to assure people that it's always the bad flu? Yeah. Well, I'll just speak from the personal side, and then I'll let Dr. Boonstra and Dr. Schaffner certainly speak from the medical side since they have the expertise there. But, um, you know, every year I keep track of the flu numbers. And for last year, for the 2016-17 season, the number for pediatric flu deaths is up to 110. For this year, as of today, the pediatric flu deaths are up to five for 2017-18. So, you know, since 2004, when CDC started recording these pediatric flu deaths, close to 1,500 children have died. And, you know, that data is available on the CDC's website. But, but the point is that, you know, we always like to think that oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to somebody else. You know, sitting here as a mother who lost a healthy child, and I want to reiterate that Joseph was healthy in every way, shape, and form. This was a healthy five-year-old boy. Um, I know we tend to kind of just as humans think, well, that's not something I have to worry about. It won't happen to me. Um, I'm here to say that it can happen to you. And I would be remiss if I just didn't encourage everyone to do everything they can within their power to protect themselves and their families from influenza. And I would just add in that the patients that I saw die from influenza were when I was a resident. Um, so that was well before H1N1. That was more like 2005, 2006. Um, so any year can be deadly to kids. Uh, there was a, a or and to, to anybody, there was also a study this year that looked specifically at pediatric deaths and looked at influenza vaccine and how much it reduced pediatric deaths. And it showed a significant reduction uh, in uh, the chance of a child dying from influenza uh, if they were immunized. So get it done every year. Yeah, here at Vanderbilt, each year, no matter what the strain, our pediatricians become distressed because children are brought to the emergency room, wind up in the intensive care unit. Sometimes a child dies of influenza. 
As with the national statistics, the vast majority of those very, very ill children had not been vaccinated. I can't imagine a parent uh, living with the knowledge that they could have vaccinated their child, but nonetheless, their child became so ill. So that happens each and every year. These are almost always healthy children, children who were fine, but 48 hours after they became ill with the first symptoms were in our emergency room in great distress. We can contribute to preventing much of that by vaccinating all our children. And I think that's a great take home message to sort of end on, which is um, get vaccinated, get your whole family vaccinated, get, get vaccinated every year for the flu. Um, so with that, I just want to say a special thank you to Dr. Schaffner and to Cerise. Cerise, thank you so much for sharing Joseph's story. I, I um, am grateful for all of the work that you do. And thank you, Dr. Schaffner, for again sharing your charm and wit and charisma and your <laughs> knowledge, too. Sorry, that, too. You're very smart. My pleasure, of course. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Yes, thank you. And so with that, I think it's time for us to say goodbye to everybody, Nathan. Yeah. All right. It is. All right. Great guests. Wonderful guests. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Please remember that Voices for Vaccines is asking for your end of the year contributions at voicesforvaccines.org slash support. Um, Our call to action this time around is to make sure you get your flu shot. And with that, I'm going to uh, say goodbye. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I am general pediatrician at Blank Drones Hospital. You can find me online on Twitter or Facebook or at my blog, pedsageekmd.com. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.